0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Agroff, and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And I have with me uh, via Zoom my friend Sean McGowan. Sean, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's great to be here, brother. Thank you.
0: Sean is the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church PCA in Tallahassee, Florida. He has his MA in Theological Studies from Reformed Theological Seminary. He's married to Noelle, and they have three children. And today we're going to be discussing a recent book that he wrote on the theme of baptism, And um, the book's title is Infant Baptism, an Introductory Sprinkling for Parishioners. And so even in the title and the subtitle, you kind of get a feel for who he's talking to and and what he's trying to accomplish here. Um, But as we dive into the interview, I do want to ask, Sean, who is in particular your audience? Is this just for your parishioners or is this for parishioners generally? Or, you know, who did you have in mind while you were writing this book?
1: My desire really to, when I was writing this book, really, I had two kinds of people in mind. Um, the first group are people who grew up, you know, reformed and Presbyterian churches and, you know, they've witnessed infant baptisms, but never really understood the theology, you know, behind the practice. Uh, m- my desire was to give them a book, you know, under a hundred pages and, and present a positive case for, you know, why, why we practice covenant baptism. You know, I, when I was writing it, I thought, you know, more than likely, whether we like it or not, I mean, the average congregant, you know, won't pick up a 150-page book and read it. Uh, we can bemoan that, but but I think that's the reality we're living in. Uh, you know, they want something short and succinct for them to read. Uh, so so my first audience was really them. You know, giving them a book to say, okay, here's a here's a positive case, short book um, on why you see you know infants being baptized in your in your church. Um, and then there was a second group, you know, second group I, I had in mind were people that were sincerely interested in, in why we practice covenant baptism. It's foreign to them. Um, you know, is there a positive case for it? Uh, so that was, that was the second group. Now, I'm, I'm not naive to think that, you know, my book will change people's minds or a- anything like that, but I, but I hope it will be something that would, you know, wet people's appetites and, and pursue the, the. The topic more in depth uh, through other books and, and things like that. So that was really my my main two audiences were um, you know those that are in those ch- in churches that that practice it but don't really understand it, um, and then those who might be genuinely interested and in, and intrigued and in why we why we do this.
0: In addition to thinking about the audience, I'm always interested to know what the motivations of the various authors are that I interview on this podcast, and so. Um, I, I want to know what motivated you to write this beyond what you already said about the audience and, and wanting to give a um, an introduction to a practice that either is, is being observed in somebody's church or being observed in, in a church that someone knows about and, and they're trying to figure out why. Um, I guess made, to make this more personal, what in your own testimony fed into the writing of this book as a motivation?
1: When I was studying the issue for myself, I realized that there weren't that many small books on the subject. Now, don't, don't hear me saying there aren't any, I mean, there are some and they're really good. And quite honestly, I don't know if my book will hold a candle to, to some of them, but they're just, I didn't think there were that many books that really, uh, that were short and really addressed the subject in, in more of a positive fashion, as opposed to defending the practice and answering objections and, and things like that. Um, you know, I, I just thought there, 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 there needed to be more, more short books on the Subject and hopefully, you know, be a gateway to uh, to study, you know, read larger books, read systematic theologies on the subject. Um, you know, especially as a pastor, if, for me, if someone came up to me and was asking for a good short explanation of it, I knew more than likely that, you know, if I told them to go open page four hundred and whatever in Burkhoff, you know, they sadly they probably wouldn't do it. Uh, but if I had a small book on a book table on baptism to hand them, they they probably would read it. And hopefully that would provoke their interest more to go and read Berkhoff. Um So, yeah, I mean, that was really, uh, you know, kind of birthed out of my own experience of, you know, there's not many small books I can get my hands on to, to read um, that just kind of give it to me straight as opposed to, um, you know, looking at massive theology, systematic theologies to, um, uh, to, to find my answers that I was looking for. And, and, you know, I went to seminary when, when I went to seminary, I was kind of a, you know, basically a Baptist. I mean, I, I had some kind of dispensationalism in my theology. I stressed, you know, some kind, I wasn't a full dispensationalist, but, um, that's kind of, you know. My, my views, that's where they were when I went to seminary. And it was really through the readings in my Old Testament classes where I embraced covenant theology. And, um, you know, once I embraced covenant theology, I began asking questions about baptism. And, and I realized rather quickly that, you know, I had not done justice to the other side by reading what, you know, Pato Baptist had to say. I was comfortable, you know, reading what Baptist had to say about Pato Baptist, right? It would always confirm in me my belief. Um, but sadly I wasn't reading what the other side had to say about their belief. So, you know, eventually I grew up and I began reading what, what Pato Baptist had to say about covenant baptism. And, and I realized at that point that there was a lot more to the issue than I had thought. So that all of that really went into writing this book. And a lot of the arguments I present uh, in the book are really birthed out of my own study and, and formulation on why okay, I'm convinced that this is the right practice. This is biblical, and um, and we ought to we ought to be applying the covenant sign to our children. So, so that yeah, all of that went into writing this this little book.
0: And even a brief description of baptism like yours, it clocking in at around seventy pages or so. The scriptures and theological reflection and even historical theology give us several options for entry points. I've seen defenses of paedo-baptism or household baptism, whatever you want to call it, infant baptism. I've seen defenses um, be built up on hermeneutics or a particular approach to reading the scriptures and fitting the truths of scripture together. I've seen uh, some defenses go right into sacramentology right off the bat and develop it, uh, uh, develop the defense upon that loci or head of theology. But you've chosen to begin with the biblical concept of covenant. Why start there? When I
1: began studying the issue for myself, I recognized you know, really quickly that baptism in many ways, uh, you could say, is a symptom of bigger theological issues. Um, and the idea of covenant, the covenant was one of them. You know, the, the idea that God has entered into a covenant of grace with his people and that covenant is administered in different ways. I think it helps us understand that when we see the old and new covenant, for example, we're not dealing with or the old, you know, the, the covenants, how they were administered in the old and new testament, we're not dealing with two radically different covenants. We're, we're dealing with one overarching covenant of grace, as the confession says, you know, administered differently in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Um, and the reason that is important is because when we talk about covenant signs or who receives the covenant sign, you know, there's a warranted assumption that God would deal with his people now the way he dealt with them in the past, right, unless there is a spl- explicit affirmation or teaching that he is dealing with them differently. So, you know, you take the question of, of baptism. Um, if the covenant sign was was applied one way in the Old Testament, then unless we have specific New Testament teaching to the contrary, it is a reasonable assumption that it will be the same in the New Testament. Um, and it's not, you know, in, in my mind, it's not simply an assumption. I think we have positive examples in the New Testament that, that show that children were part of the covenant, just like they were in the old. Um, you know, the classic example, and, and I use it in my book, is, You know, we have Peter on the day of Pentecost, right, proclaiming that the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, whoever the Lord God will call, right? If you think about, you know, if you think about the Jews that were there listening to this, they have understood for hundreds of years that their children were part of the covenant community. Would Peter's words about the promise being for them and their children, would that cause them to think that their children are no longer uh, part or members of the covenant community, or would it confirm what they already knew, right, that the covenant community in the new includes their children like the covenant community of the old? So, so I think the historical context and background would, would suggest that there's strong continuity, not a radical discontinuity when it comes to children in the covenant. I mean, I, it wouldn't, in, in my mind, it wouldn't make sense historically to suggest that, that the Jews would take Peter's words and conclude that their children are no longer in the covenant. Um, and there are other instances in the New Testament also, uh, and, and I present them in the book, where where the covenantal connection is present, uh, which, which demonstrates that ex- instead of explicit teaching that there is a change in the way God deals with children of believers in the New, there's a continuity in how he deals with them on this side of the cross. Uh, and, and this was something that really struck me, you know, especially when I was studying coming from a Baptist perspective. I, I always started with the New Testament. I would say, show me exactly in the New Testament where we have a command to baptize children. And, and, and I thought, in my mind, the silence, you know, if we want to use that terminology, the silence of the New Testament was an argument for the Baptist view. When when in reality, you know, the silence, so to speak, in the New Testament on this issue is an argument for children remaining in the covenant. Because we have an entire revelation from God in the Old Testament and the view of children being in the covenant community and receiving the covenant sign of righteousness before they could exercise faith was a normal practice that God commanded. And so this is why I started there. I mean, there's like you mentioned, there's plenty of approaches you can take to this, and I actually use a few of them in my book. Um, but yeah, I start with the covenant idea because I think it's 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 vital in helping us understand covenant signs, who receives the covenant sign. Um, And and all of those things.
0: So as we think about covenant theology and its relationship to baptism, uh, I guess a follow-up question to that would be, what is the relation between an individual recipient of baptism's faith and the household of which that individual is a member? Basically, I'm asking whose faith counts in baptism And, and is it different for an adult convert and for a child or a subordinate member of a household?
1: because there's continuity between the covenant sign of circumcision in the old and the covenant sign of baptism in the new, you know, we can see a parallel between the two. So, so in the old Testament, we see that Abraham received circumcision, right? And, and Paul tells us in Romans four, it's as a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith, right? It was because he expressed faith in the God of the covenant that he received the sign of the covenant, which at, at that time, was circumcision. So for Abraham, we would argue that his circumcision was, you know, a convert circumcision. He embraced the God of the covenant through faith and he received the initiatory sign of entrance into uh, God's covenant. But we also see there's another category, right? We also, we also see that God commands him then to give that covenant sign to Isaac who cannot exercise the same faith of Abraham because he didn't, he didn't have the ability. So a principle is set down in scripture, right? Because Abraham was a believer in Yahweh it had implications for his children. It had implications for his, for his household. They were part of the covenant by virtue of the faith of their parents. Uh, and again, this principle was ingrained in the people of God. So when we come to the New Testament, we don't see anywhere the suggestion that that principle that was set down is abrogated. And because of the connection, and I argue in, in the book, between circumcision and baptism, Right. Both being the sign that is applied to those who enter the covenant community, I, I would argue that the same principle applies to the church. You know, you, if if you ask the average American evangelical, you know, when what do they think of baptism, or what, what what is baptism? You know, they they would probably think of what we would call convert baptism, right? Someone professing faith in Christ and then being baptized and. And and that's one category. That's exactly what Abraham did. And for that matter, any other people or person outside of Israel that embraced the God of Israel in the Old Testament, they would be, they would be circumcised. But but there's another category as well. And, and we see that in the fact that the majority of Israelites, Israelite uh, boys, received the covenant sign of righteousness as an infant before they could exercise faith of their own. So so just like the Old Testament principle, the covenant sign of baptism is applied to infants of parents who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, those infants of believers are to receive the sign and be part of the visible church by way of their parents' faith. Um, so it's, 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 it's by virtue of their parents' faith because they have believing parents or at least one believing parent, uh, they, they receive the covenant sign. They're a part of the covenant community. Uh, and and I, and I mentioned this in the book, and I think it it should be mentioned here. And it's been I mean, it's been emphatically argued by by Reformed Christians that this doesn't mean you know one that baptism saves, and it also doesn't mean that the infant being baptized does not have to express faith. Um, I, I say in the book that they need to to claim or take hold of the promises made to them in their baptism. Uh, you know, when we say you know. When we argue what we're arguing, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're not going to have to embrace the God of the covenant. They're not going to have to express their own individual faith. Uh, but just like under the old covenant, circumcised Jewish boys had to embrace Yahweh by faith, right? So we expect and we pray that our children will embrace the God who has made promises to them in their baptism. Um, you know, we pray to that end. Uh, you know, and sadly, if you look at the history of Israel, right, many of them, ended up trusting in their circumcision instead of the substance of what their circumcision pointed to. And obviously we pray that our children would not do the same and, and, and look at their baptism and say, that's, that's what I'm, you know, I'm, 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 saved because of that. No, we, we pray that you take hold and you, of the God of the covenant and you receive the substance of what that sign points to.
0: What I, what I frequently pray with my children is that the Lord would Uh, who has bestowed promises upon them in their baptism, that he would bestow upon them and grace upon them the realities expressed in those promises and that the faith of their parents would uh, become their faith and they would even pass that on to their children um, through faithful nurture and admonition of the Lord, but most importantly, the the spirits working in their hearts um, in their own lives. But this actually leads me to the next question. It's a frequent objection uh, from our Baptist brothers, and that is what about Jeremiah 31? In Jeremiah 31, there's an insistence, particularly in verse 34, that the covenant community will, quote, know the Lord, end quote. So, how can the new covenant community, which we argue includes children and infants who have not and indeed could not profess to know the Lord, how can that new covenant community actually include those children and infants and others even those who are um who are mentally incapable of doing so uh to know the lord how, how, how can we how can we include those folks who can't profess that knowledge in what we call the new covenant community
1: that was one of my biggest questions um you know jeremiah 31 as you said it, it indicates that not only will all in it know the Lord but that it can't be broken right Jeremiah contrasts uh, this covenant with the Mosaic Covenant which was broken. Um, you know I, I don't deal with many objections in my book because that wasn't the purpose of the book but but this is one I actually do take some time to work through uh, and, and generally you know there's been a few different responses, reform responses to this objection so certainly the, the one that I present is not the only um, way to argue against this objection, Um, but I I think this argument is the most helpful, uh, and and it's the one I argue for in the book, and and that is that Jeremiah 31, you know, it has a lot more to say about the new covenant than most people think. Um, You know, for example, the average Christian that thinks of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah may not think of a restored Jerusalem that could not be overthrown, yet, yet Jeremiah talks about that in verse 40, right? This is a part of the new covenant promise. Yet as, as we are recipients of the new covenant now, right, we're living in the new covenant, we don't see that ultimate restoration yet. It's, it's, it's a promise of the new covenant, but it's not, it's not a reality yet, right? It's not, in the, it's not in the now. We're still in a fallen, sinful world. Uh, and based on things like that, what I argue is that what we have going on in Jeremiah 31 is what many scholars would, would label an already-not-yet scenario, So in other words, there are aspects of the new covenant that we are currently living in and enjoying and aspects of the covenant, new covenant that are still yet to come. And and as I say in the book, I I essentially say there are aspects of this prophecy that have been fulfilled and are a reality now. And there are aspects of that same prophecy that are not yet. And they await a future fulfillment. And, And I think we see this in the New Testament. There are some parts of the new covenant that have been inaugurated and some that await a final consummation. So, for example, we know the Lord Jesus Christ, he inaugurates the new covenant, right? Paul and his companions call themselves the ministers of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.6. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews points to the superiority of the Christian faith over practices of the Old Testament um, by identifying the Christian faith with Jeremiah's new covenant. So so we clearly see that the new covenant has been inaugurated, yet at the same time, we see certain aspects of that covenant that are waiting awaiting the consummation of all things so for example while at the consummation of all things this new covenant will be unbreakable we we see in the new testament that at the present time the covenant can be broken and and there's a few examples of this but but you know the same author of hebrews that says we are in the new covenant now also says in hebrews 10 28 and 31 he says anyone who sets aside the law of moses Dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So essentially you know, Hebrews is saying that covenant breakers under the law of Moses, right? They were executed for capital punishment offenses. How much worse will it be for covenant breakers now? Covenant breakers where? In the new, in the new covenant. So with this, you know, with this already not yet paradigm in mind, clearly in the already phase, the covenant can be broken. But, but when, when the consummation of all things comes, right, the covenant will not be broken and everyone will know the Lord. So I think from, you know, for me, when I was arguing as a Baptist using Jeremiah 31, I would say now that I was over-realizing the New Covenant blessings in the now. Right, I didn't see that there were some things that would not be fulfilled into the consummation. Um, and, and there are other examples of this, and I, and I mentioned some of them in the book. You know, um, Jeremiah talks about the fact that in the New Covenant, we won't need teachers. But clearly, in, in the in the already phase, right, what we live in now, we we still need teachers. I mean, they're essential in helping us understand the Word of God and grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Um, and, and there are other examples that I that I give in the book as well. And, and and I make the case in the book that every in every administration of the covenant, children were included. And I and I think we see that in the New Covenant as well. Children are included in the New Covenant, and and if they reject the Covenant. Or as Hebrews says, they profane the blood of the covenant by which they were set apart, they will reap covenantal curses and the Lord will judge them for it, right? The Lord will judge his people. There's a who were his people. There's a covenantal connection there. Um, and I think the warning passages, you know, in the New Testament, they make sense in this context of covenant breakers. They're not, they're not hypotheticals, they're not people that lose their salvation. They were people that enjoyed covenantal blessings in some way. But they have rejected the God of the covenant, and thus they reap the covenantal consequences for it. I mean, you, you, you study covenants, you, you look in the Old Testament, you understand the concept of covenant. There's always covenantal blessing and covenantal curses. And, um, and I think it's no different in the new covenant. Uh, and, and that helps us make sense of all those passages that we, we wonder about. I mean, is this, can I actually lose my salvation? Well, no, this is a reference to someone who was in the covenant, who enjoyed blessings to some extent of the new covenant, um, but ultimately didn't embrace the God of the covenant, but rejected the God of the covenant. And thus they are reaping the curses uh, for their rejection. So that's how I would understand Jeremiah 31 in the, in the grand scheme. There's, there's, there's certain aspects of it that have already been fulfilled, and there's certain aspects of it that, that yet await the consummation. When the when Jerusalem will be restored, right? When 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 the consummation of all things will will take place, um, and at that point, you know, we won't be teachers anymore. Everyone will know the Lord, and, and so in that context of the of the not yet phase, the consummation um, at that point, everybody in the covenant community will be redeemed. Um, so anyway, I mean, there's again, there's different ways to understand it, and certainly that's not the only argument that that reformed believers would, would would put forth against that objection but um i've found this one to be the, the one that makes the most sense uh,
0: that's all very helpful and and i think that we've covered as much in this interview as is in your short book i'm just kidding there's always <laughs> there's always more uh to dig into in the books that i feature on the podcast here um interestingly sean i have noticed and it's probably great mind great minds thinking alike here but uh, in recent years even just this past week I noticed Jason holopolis released a book on infant baptism and Guy Richard the president the new president I guess he was executive director now he's president of RTS Atlanta released a book through Reformation trust I think on uh, baptism a little book and yes. uh, you so know, my
1: desire my desire is being fulfilled your Praise desire Lord.
0: is being fulfilled <laughs> through many means and you know all three of these sure. books uh, as far as I know, are our, our short treatments, uh, succinct to the point, keeping uh, Baptist brothers in mind as well as uh, you know Presbyterian members who are wondering, you know, why do we do this? Is just is this just a carryover from Roman Catholicism and man made tradition, or is this actually a biblical practice? It must be biblical because my pastors are biblical. So why do we do this? And um, you know, your book at least I can't speak to the other two because I haven't read them yet. But your book at least um, brings. Uh, in a very clear manner, scriptural data to bear, so to speak, on the question and makes clear why it is we do what we do. And then one other book that I always like to recommend whenever I'm talking about infant baptism is Pierre Marcel's excellent uh, little treatise on on the biblical doctrine of infant baptism. And I, I always put that out there. That's a bit more of a demanding read as it's translated out of French. And it is uh, a bit more of a, of a uh, monograph rather than a lay-level book, but it, it is really useful, especially if you read a book like Sean's and then you want to go deeper and you want to dig in a bit more into the theology that's that's being expressed in in Sean's book. Um, Marcel's book would be a wonderful resource to you, as well as bigger works like Burkhoff, whom was already mentioned, and also... Um, uh bannerman Bavink, or you know some other systematic theology that's useful or um you know if you really want to go deep herman witsius on uh the economy of the covenants he has great treatment on baptism in there and covenant theology anyway sean i have one more question for you are you working on any other writing projects right now or is this kind of a one-off effort as far as you're concerned
1: Right now, I'm actually working on a little book. It's, it's probably going to be shorter than this, so maybe a booklet, um, on the imprecatory psalms. And, um, you know, really, it's really a book that asks the question, can can Christians today continue to pray these psalms? And I, I really, you know, focus on Psalm uh, 137, uh, probably one of the most uh, challenging imprecatory psalms uh, in, in Scripture. But it, it really goes through, you know, how do we understand this? Pregatory Psalms. Uh, how do we understand them as as New Covenant Christians? Can we pray them today, um, or are they off limits? And you know, there's a lot of different views on on that. But um, but yeah, I'm, it, again, it's a short book on a on a challenging subject that I hope would you know wet people's appetites to to read further. Although you know, I, I don't know of I only know of one I think um, full length book that that focuses on the topic. So I think this is a a much needed area that needs to be explored more. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's what I'm working on now. And hopefully it'll be published in the next few months. Um, and then who knows from there. Great.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing that, Sean. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, and thank you for putting together this little book. I found it useful and devotional for myself and enjoyable to read. And I'm sure that um, many other folks, even perhaps some of our listeners today, will, uh, will acquire it and, and give it a read as well.
1: Amen. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for for your time.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at Edu/donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.